Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones, and I'm joined today by Joshua Gunns, the author of The Well-Timed Economics in the Age of COVID-19. This short book, 132 pages, is published by MIT Press and is the inaugural publication in a new series called MIT Press First Reads. For obvious reasons, the book was written at speed, and Joshua does warn the reader early on that it will need an update in the autumn. Nevertheless, it's packed with both the latest thinking in epidemiology and in what has worked and what hasn't in the economic policy response. He brings us historical precedent, such as the response to the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and the economic reconstruction effort after 1945, as well as some interesting and heterodox ideas for what the public and private sectors should do next. Joshua holds the Jeffrey Skoll Chair in Technical Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the Rockman School of Management at the University of Toronto, where he also serves as Chief Economist to Creative Destruction Lab, a seed stage program for massively scalable science-based companies. Born in Sydney in 1968, Joshua went to school in Brisbane and at the University of Queensland before taking his PhD in economics at Stanford. From there, he returned to Australia to lecture at the University of New South Wales, then at Melbourne Business School, where he became a full professor in 2000. The author and co-author of weighty textbooks, including Principles of Microeconomics and Principles of Macroeconomics with Greg Mankey, Stephen King and Robin Stonecash, Joshua also wrote Parentonomics back in 2010 and continues to blog on the subject of parenting and economics. Joshua, welcome. Uh, thanks. Could you begin be... by... Thank you. Could you begin by explaining the story behind why and how you wrote this, as you describe it, hastily written book? Had MIT Press already come up with the idea of first reads, or did your idea come first? Well, I'm not 100% sure where um, uh, first reads, where, what its genesis is, but for, for my part, I was... Um, at home, as everybody else was, uh, mid-March, and I wasn't really uh, doing anything uh, productive except obsessing over coronavirus infection figures and other things like that and trying to understand what was going on around us. Uh, And I thought to myself, you know, I can't just do this. I'm clearly not going to do any other work. I'm apparently going to neglect my children. So... (laughs) Aside from, well, the, the, the idea of, um, you know, homeschooling and other things like that, we quite, hadn't quite worked out what we were going to do. Uh, but I uh, thought, well, maybe I should just do what I uh, seem to do best, which is write popular books that explain economics, you know, to a wider audience. And I should do it maybe for this as well. Uh, I could easily have just been blogging about it, but I thought that if I set myself the discipline of trying to cover all the bases in a book, I would uh, 
come up with a, a you know something that was was of better use to everybody. And so that's really what happened. And then fortunately, I've I've had books published with MIT Press before, and so I did approach them because I I wanted it to be a peer reviewed book and and published. But I basically said, you know, I'm not going to write this thing in a matter of weeks if you're going to spend six months publishing it. Um, and so uh, they basically said, no, I, we will work out, you know, this way of being able to do it uh, quickly, uh, maybe with a, an alternative from their point of view, alternative branding to to note that. Uh, and uh, we were off to the races. So that's basically what happened. And uh, I think they moved faster than any publisher has moved in history for any of these things. No, it's an incredibly impressive feat. I mean, how many, uh, basically, how quickly did you write it from from starting to, to, to the last full stop? Yeah, I looked at my first email to MIT Press um, before I'd started writing was on the 19th of March. And the book was published, uh, you know, just as an e-book, because you can't get these things printed right now, yeah. uh, uh, on the 22nd of April. So that was just over a month from start to finish, which, which is when you think about it, quite ridiculous. <laughs> what What is your typical life being in, in, in previous books uh, you've written? Um, it, it sort of depends. I normally uh, write books. Um, you know, I noodle over them for some months and develop research and collect <laughs> things like that. And um, I, I like to write in bursts, so that's something I'm familiar with. But normally, I write mm-hmm. half a book take a few months off and write the next half. Um, so, you know, a, a normal six months to a year process of just getting that done. And then it's usually mm-hmm. nine months or so before, by the time you submit a final draft to a publisher that it actually comes out in print. Um, so this this virus, of course, you know, it couldn't wait that long. I mean, for starters, I, I, I'm already worried, um, and this is May, that the book is starting to get out of date. <laughs> <laughs> let alone what, what a normal process would give. Well, except, I mean, one of the most useful parts of the book, actually, is the, are the footnotes, the, the, the research that you refer to, the ongoing research you refer to, and the, the sort of interrelation between economics and epidemiology. Um, yeah. Did you, know, did you know much of that before you start, before you put fingers to keyboard, or did you stumble across that? Uh, uh, as you went along? I, I, well, what happened, I think, is... Um, um, so I'd had some previous papers in, in health, but in health economics, but different elements of it to, to this. Um, and I think... So what happened was there was a very small literature in economics about some of these things. A lot of it had to do with the AIDS epidemic, which has all sorts mm. of interesting incentives and, and other problems that, that arise from it. So people would research that. Uh, and there were a few other uh, things around. But if you look at the footnotes in my books are, are extraordinary because just the academic papers alone, um, I'd say 80% of them uh, were written during the time I was writing the book. Uh, so they just started appearing. So I wasn't the only person sitting at home wondering what to do. My economist colleagues were sitting there and saying, well, why should I do something? And they each took their area of expertise and developed some uh, COVID research around it. And it's been 
uh, it was certainly great for me um, because you know it's like I had an entire community that I was sitting on the on the shoulders of uh, trying mm. to digest these things, which I couldn't have done that on my own, and that's still ongoing as well. And so I think the thing we learned from this is epidemiology is one of these uh, places that sits between medical science and social science. And I think what we're uh, realizing now is that there's a lot of contributions to be had from the social science part of that equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this will be, you know, if we're looking for a long lasting impact of this on science, I don't think uh, these issues are, uh, I think economists are going to concentrate on these issues far more intensively now. Um, one, yeah. because it's useful to understand it. And two, because on the economic side of the pandemic equation, we had not done enough thinking. Uh, we were wholly unprepared for how uh, economic management should change, respond, react to a pandemic. Uh, it was it was previously was very simplistic. Oh, this thing comes in, it would be bad. It's disruptive. It's a you know it's a supply side shock. Whatever. Uh, it's not really uh, uh, very useful, but actually there's a lot going on there. There are a lot of issues uh, that need to be done and a lot of the things that governments have been doing have been very much on the fly, whereas I think we'll look back later on and, and wish we knew more and had yeah. thought about it at scientific cadence rather than crisis cadence. Yeah, in fact, you say quite early on, you say, uh, quote, having a clear and resolved approach to holding the line on health is warranted. Yeah. Is, it, is it fair, you think, to say that the the foundation of the book is that the, the perceived trade-off between public health and economic activity, which is what we see in the press every day, that, that in this context is, is too simplistic and, and, and wrong-headed? I think there's a different levels of it. So, you know, uh, here in North America and, and, and the United Kingdom and much of Europe. The the crisis is one where we're sort of it's 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 already out of control in in some sense. It's already got too big to handle, and so we are facing these uh, brutal trade offs seemingly between the economy and health. Now, uh, that's at least how it's perceived. Uh, mm-hmm. Once you expand the time frame, you realize the things aren't really trade offs, but they sort of go hand in hand. And and most economists will tell you we need to solve the health problem in order to solve the economic problem. There's no sort of magic reopening and and, uh, accepting a number of deaths type thing. People don't like to accept deaths, you know, especially their own. So I think it's it's more difficult than that. But uh, in terms of the thing that you mentioned regarding resolve, uh, which is how I put it in in that book, which was basically pandemics, have to be controlled uh, and and really uh, dealt with when they're very hard to see the consequences of them right at the beginning. You sort of have to have plans and actions right there. And I think uh, when we step back and look at who handled it best and who didn't, it will be the ones who had a plan and enacted that plan uh, right away uh, that did well. And obviously, you know, South Korea and Taiwan are yeah. at the top of that list. 
But I think also in terms of uh, uh, characterizing the problem, I would, uh, you know, my view now, and certainly in the updated book version of this book, this will be said more emphatically than I did previously, is that pandemics are very manageable. I think there was a sense in March and April of fatalism. It's like, oh, look at this pox has come upon us. Uh, We must plough through as best we can. And, of course, at that time, that's what had happened. But Mm -hmm. I think once we step back, we're going to say, actually, uh, no, pandemics are very manageable. And and it comes down to something that I, I call the pandemic information problem. And basically, if you know who is infected, you can isolate them and the virus or whatever doesn't spread. So in other words, the chief thing stopping us from being able to, uh, stopping us from containing any virus is knowing who's infected. Now, once you sort of accept that, you realize that the early pandemic game is an information game. And you want to pour resources into solving that information problem, isolate, you know, people who are infected or probably infected, uh, and then you can deal with this very quickly. And this isn't just a theory. Uh, With the SARS uh, epidemic in uh, 2003, uh, you know, that was a a very infectious uh, coronavirus, as it turns out. Uh, and uh, also far more deadly, about 10% case fatality rate rather than 1% or, or, or 2% as, as this might be. Uh, and uh, they dealt with it very quickly. It was within a few months. Uh, the cases spiked and then they got crushed all the way back down because they aggressively found infected people. Now, the difference between SARS and and the novel coronavirus today is that SARS presented its symptoms right away. It was flu-like symptoms. So basically they took in the countries where there was an outbreak, all the people who had flu-like symptoms isolated them, and then the virus died out. This time around, we don't have that luxury. We can't see the virus when it is initially infectious, when people are initially infectious. So we have to work much harder. But we also know that countries who understood that were able to deal with this uh, very quickly. And so they didn't have to engage in lockdowns and they were able to deal with it. And even the ones that engaged in lockdowns like Australia and New Zealand, if they did testing and contract tracing, they were able to deal with it quickly as well. And so the great news there is that all of the, um, uh, all of the, uh, uh, costs, the economic costs of a shutdown and prolonged shutdown were avoided. And so I think that's going to be our takeaway in the end. I think in the end, we're going to hopefully stand up and say, look, if we do our work, we shouldn't have to go through this again. Yeah. And it's, in that respect, it's quite interesting, well, very interesting, in fact, the, uh, when you pointed out what happened in the, in the small town of Vogue in mm. northern Italy, that, that the, the number of asymptomatic people who were then isolated and then you had a massive drop in the uh, in the infection rate, and also the contrast between the way it was managed between Lombardy and Veneto. Do, do you think, though Italy in a way acts as a, a pilot project for the rest of us? Well, I wish effect? it was a you know yes, it should have. <laughs> the problem <laughs> we faced was that 
Um, it was so unclear. <laughs> you know, I know this because yeah. I didn't know what was going on. Uh, it was so unclear at the beginning what was happening. And, and I think everybody uh, knew that there was a sense in which whatever you did now didn't really show up for two to three weeks in something you could see in terms of infection rates or something else. Yeah. And so it was, it was very hard to be clear on who might be in different paths or not <laughs> uh, when they've done different things. It just wasn't, wasn't at all clear. And I think that's really hampered a lot of things. Now, that said, uh, it's it's a good idea, you know, this is why you sort of have to hand over the management of this crisis to health officials who are basically going to say, well, this is what we need to do from a health perspective. And I understand you've got this economic problem, but we're going to have to do this uh, because otherwise we're going to, uh, you know, end up with a far more prolonged situation. And I think right at that time, I don't think enough people believed that you could take the curve it was called, not just flatten it, as they termed, but actually crush it and and get rid of the uh, virus. I think that wasn't being, certainly wasn't being communicated, and I'm not Mm. sure how much was understood. Um, And and the thing that can give us pause is that we can often point to, well, the the United States, well, they uh, were managing this particularly badly and, of course, continue to do so but it's uh, and are paying the price for it but it's not like everybody else had a clear record on this either uh mm. there there are some missing things in our uh process that you know w- we really shouldn't have uh, the way i make it it's akin to the situation in in the great depression one of the reasons that's accepted the great depression really happened was be- when there was a shock to the economy in terms of finance, instead of flooding the markets with liquidity and other things like that to to grease the wheels uh, of that, um, they did exactly the opposite <laughs> and said, oh, we're going to get inflation or something. So they reduced the money supply. Now, that turned out to just send a whole lot of banks bankrupt much quicker and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so that lesson was learned. And uh, since then, Every other time we have one of these crises, we now do the opposite. We, that's a, a game plan that occurs. And, you know, central banks in particular have those plans available. And in this crisis here, there was even a broad consensus from economists of how to handle it. Uh, it's just that we hadn't gone through all the details of it. Um, and I'm, you know, while I'm confident that everybody did the right thing, uh, and would do it again, given the information they had. I can imagine in some months' time, or maybe a bit longer, we're going to look back and say, "Oh, oh we oh, we really shouldn't have done that. That was too costly. Didn't work, etc." Um, and so, you know, because it was done uh, done in a crisis. Oh, this this program was was abused terribly, mm-hmm. and what have you. Uh, so, so this is where we have to do a lot more work because. These things are, are. This is this is not the last one of these. But you, you, are, you, are you implying that the next time around policy should aim to crush the curve, and obviously for that to work, and you you talk about this at the end of the book, for that to work, you require a really effective, essentially an IMF of pandemics. Yeah. Would that be your 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 chosen approach rather than this kind of 
flattening the curve, which 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 means that you you can manage the infections, but you actually prolong the pandemic. I I think so. I think uh, I mean uh, you know, and we might uh, maybe evidence will come to the contrary, but I take heart that with SARS and MERS, the curves were crushed, and in certain countries around the world, the curves were crushed in this in this one as well. So that tells me that that is possible. Um, what you want to do is do that everywhere. And in particular, what you want to do is have it be crushed in the, the country or countries that initially are hit by uh, whatever virus is, is, is emerging. Um, and so there are kind of multiple points of failure. You know, once the virus has left that particular country and is everywhere, I think there are still opportunities for investments in information to crush the curve worldwide. Uh, what would be better is if uh, it didn't leave its initial uh, uh, region uh, and could be contained more quickly there. And, you know, yeah. I don't, I, it's not a thing of trying to work out blame. I actually, I don't think there are many governments in the world that are, uh, you know, are trustworthy enough to uh, hold their finger in the, in the leaking dam for the rest of the world. <laughs> and so yeah. I would rather, like the IMF or the United Nations, see a supranational authority with some uh, ability to go in and manage these crises above the national interest of the country yeah. uh, uh, involved, uh, you know, at the time. I think it's just too big a calamity uh, to 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 not have that, and that could be anywhere it could go. Um, these viruses emerge uh, in in all sorts of different countries, and um, what we need is global, worldwide monitoring, so that they can be identified and then dealt with quickly. Yeah, and again, related to that, I really like the idea, and these are quite new concepts to me. Um, the idea of stopping the clock which you picked up from uh, the, the Marginal Revolution uh, blog, yes. and the concept of a dark recession. So in the, the kind of policy response you're talking about, which is extremely severe, um, but uh, with luck, very quick, would your optimal policy response be one that is about stopping the clock? And could you expand further on your idea of what a dark recession is as opposed to a standard recession. Yeah. So so in terms of uh, stopping the clock, so, you know, if if the virus breaks out in a particular country, some virus somewhere breaks out in a particular country, um, we can invest in information to try and, and contain it. But we may also, if it's particularly virulent and other things like that, want to impose basically restrictions on movement. Uh, so we have to shut down. Uh, an economy in order to do that. Um, and I think that the best uh, metaphor for how we want to do that uh, as, uh, you know, how we want to do that is we want to be able to shut down things. And uh, I call it a pause. Some people call it stopping time. Others call it hibernation or a medical induced coma, whereby the goal is Yes, we shut it down, but the goal of the policies are directed at being able to just press play again and start from where we left off. And, you know, I know that we can, we can do this for probably a month or two. 
so long as nobody's sort of closing down business, people losing their jobs, et cetera, and people hasn't mm. have enough money to be able to to service their their basic needs. Um, we can do that. And we know we can do that because we essentially do that one, one month a year in most countries. You know, France in, uh, empties out. <laughs> Paris <laughs> empties out during the, during, during the summer. Um, Australia and New Zealand do it in January. Uh, US does it in August. Uh, you know, basically the economy just <laughs> pauses and uh, people seem yeah. to be able to do it. Uh, so I think that is a, a sound affair. But what you'd want to do is not sort of like have people saying, oh, where do we have to do this? And suddenly writing legislation, throwing billions of dollars at various bits of it like whack-a-mole, but something more sensible to be able to sort of hit the, hit the, hit the switch on and all of a sudden everything, okay, we're in pause mode, here's what happens, and everybody understands mm-hmm. that. And I think if we can do it with confidence that it was going to be just two months, which is, you know, uh, yeah. what at least uh, some of these economies suggest it could be, um, then then it's manageable. The problem we have now is we did it, but not there was no end date. <laughs> there was yeah. no end date. So, it, you know, that's a real problem now that we're getting to the end of that point and and uh, people don't know where the money's going to come from and things like that, and the virus is still running around. So it's a problem. Uh, the second part of your question, which was about dark recessions, well, this was ima- me, um, I guess, imagining, um, but it's not fully imagining, is, you know, uh, if we have one of these viruses that causes a lot of uh, death and sickness, um, if we let that run its course, uh, it's going to actually have an impact on, well, for want of a better term, labor supply. <laughs> We're going to, you know, have, you know, we we get our wealth from people who make things. And if if a lot of people are sick or worse, uh, that, that becomes a, a problem and a constraint, let alone the effects of that in terms of people's behavior. Uh, and we saw that, uh, at least in human history, with the, the Black Death, for instance, uh, the bubonic plague uh, in the in medieval times it really had a, a a terrible effect on the population and therefore the economies for 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 centuries. So we certainly wouldn't want something like that to occur here. I think, in many respects, we should think ourselves of, as extremely lucky with the coronavirus. Is uh, it, it is not is not it's 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 uh, it has a high fatality rate too high, but not ridiculously high. Um, you know, MERS has 50%. Uh, so 1% is far lower than that. And and secondly, in terms of people getting sick, uh, we should also um, be very grateful that it wasn't the children getting sick as they did with polio yeah. or something like that. And so I think uh, and all that would have had a far bigger effect. You wouldn't have to lock down the economy at all if children were getting sick no one was going anywhere uh so uh would be going anywhere so i think i think those are those are things where we've been lucky but we should take this ultimately as a very costly warning sign to get our house in order yeah and on that i mean you talk about the 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 idea of creating a new manhattan project and a new Bretton woods do you think also to make the idea of Stopping the clock is an option credible in the future. Um, we we should all 
globally do something like the Norwegians did when they when they discovered oil and, and, and build a huge fund. Because if this is going to happen in repeatedly, I think markets are going to find it hard to believe that uh, nationally um, fiscal policy will be able to to cope with it. I think there is some case to really be working on on that. Um, there are all sorts of different models about, and I, I must admit, I don't know uh, which would be the right way to go, and let alone global coordination over these things. Uh, but you know, I think it would certainly be worthwhile thinking about that, given the sums of money that had to be sort of just checks written to deal with this. And I think one of the fallouts from this will will be when we look at this and say, well, we didn't have to spend half of this or half of it was directed the wrong way is we should have a better plan for this. Uh, and uh, we did this with, with the financial sector and being able to deal with those. Uh, you know, it, it, is, it is surprising how well that works. I mean, basically in 2009, we, uh, 2008, 2009, we can sort of claim that it was was a catastrophe, but really it was a great depression level of risk going on and the system broadly worked to stop that happening. Uh, and I think we could probably uh, do the same here. And I think one of the reasons that it gives me confidence we could do so is that we should start to think about, you know, how little we were spending on anything preventative here uh, to do with this relative to what we spend on wars and other other things, uh, etc. Um, it seems like, you know, there should be an appetite to vastly increase our uh, spending on uh, catastrophe prevention. Catastrophes aren't good. Catastrophes are, you know, like I, I know it's easy to say, it's, it's very easy to say that now, but uh, let, let's be very clear, you know, people were saying, you know, Bill, Bill Gates gave a speech in 2015, a TED Talk, and he said, here's what's going to happen if there's a pandemic. And basically, it's exactly what happened. Um, so, <laughs> it was not yeah. like, uh, you know, it was not that controversial that this was going to occur. Um, the Obama administration, you know, put it as their biggest l- thing that they had to try and educate the Trump administration on in transition of power. Such was the risk of these uh, pandemics. And that's just that. And we haven't even got to other things that could be uh, catastrophes in the world uh, that people have talked about that aren't, that are a bit more slow moving like climate change. And so I think if there's ever a message to get from this crisis, if we want to not let a good crisis go to waste, it'll be changing our understanding of how we prepare for these things, how much we put aside societal-wise to be able to deal with this. Uh, Yeah, and you make a very interesting point at the end, at the end of the book, uh, referring to the, um, uh, I forget who wrote the research now, but the the idea that it, it is possible to, to walk and chew gum at the same time. It is possible to prioritise yeah. this and prioritise climate change. Could you could you expand on that a little? Well, yeah, so I was a bit worried. You know, one of the things that comes up with these crises, you sort of say, well, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, uh, let me put it this way. Uh, if, if you have two crises that could occur, a pandemic that really harms people and a a climate catastrophe that really harms people. There's a tendency to think as, oh, look at all these catastrophes that could occur. Even if we deal with one, we're going to have to deal with the other. 
And so does this mean that I have to push hard on every single catastrophe I can ever imagine all the way to evil robots taking over the earth or whatever, and, and I have to think about all of that before dealing with any of them? And, you know, my answer to that was, you know, no, uh, is that really it's the case for any of these given catastrophes that the benefits of spending some amount of money to lower the risk of it are so high that just do the ones you're already aware of. (laughs) Do that uh, and it it will still be worthwhile expenditure uh, going on. Yes, it is true. That we may not have a, you know, there's maybe some massive comet, comet that we don't have the ability to stop hitting us now. And if we spend all our time trying to save the planet, it's not worth it. That is true. But that's a, you know, still low probability event. And we are better off uh, preparing ourselves for the good scenario whereby we uh, save the planet and, and we're able to, uh, able to enjoy the fruits of that for centuries. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, you are working on an update to this book at the moment, I believe. When when will we see the uh, update published? So that's coming on a little bit more normal publication schedule. It will appear in November in actual real uh, print uh, as well as uh, an e-book. It'll probably be about um, 50% to, to 75% bigger with more content than the, the current book, including some interesting issues regarding, you know, how you tell the truth in managing these crises, privacy, and also uh, thinking about the upcoming issue we're going to have regarding vaccine rationing, which I sort of touched on in the book. But yes. I, I think as an economist, that, that, that required some more attention. <laughs> Maybe you could design the auction. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be an auction. <laughs> That's what yeah. I don't want. <laughs> Designed the lottery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and beyond that, uh, what what books do you expect to be working on? Maybe into next year. Oh, uh, I I don't know. I will probably pick up old projects, uh, such as I've been working on a textbook on entrepreneurship for some time. So that'll be the next uh, uh, thing there. I I, I still haven't quite. Uh, got myself into the mindset of the of the future yet yeah well yeah none of us has well thank you very much for doing this uh, interview thank you